1: hello everyone and welcome to august the following people have pledged their support on patreon to support the podcast and because of these kind people i am able to put the podcast out on a consistent basis so i want to thank david and jennifer von ebers jeff ulmer sylvan groth liz brunson yetta steve van sack Rob Barnett, Randy Brown, Bella Pori, John Munson, Levi Petrie, Stephen Malio, Steve Rogers, Dale Hosack, Terry Smith, Anna Lynn, Chris Bloom, and Mary Thomas. Thanks everyone for the support. If you want to be part of the Patreon family and get unique, unedited episodes in video, Please go to Patreon.com, search for Set Lusting Bruce, and you can support for as little as $5 a month. Thank you, everyone. Now on to the show. I mean, my own books,
2: um, you know, the first books I wrote back in the late 80s, um, they were fan books. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly the first couple lots of pictures and they should have called that the title of all those books regardless of the band should have been great guys and also I was still spending a lot of time with those people and I wanted them to like it I didn't want it to ruin the relationship not anymore I've been a serious author now for well over 20 years 25 years as a serious author going back to the late 90s and I absolutely could not care less what the artists think the only person there is literally one person in the whole world that is ever I feel I owe anything to when I do these books and that is the reader The reader is my best friend, my harshest critic, my enemy, if they hate something I've done, which quite often happens. Um, But you can't, you can, and they come out as fan books, but you can't interrogate history if you don't put the spotlight right in its face. And, and, And I don't find it interesting if I don't dig deep and let the story reveal itself to me. We all feel we know a lot about the Eagles or Mm -hmm. I've written about Led Zeppelin, the Doors, loads of people. And you feel you have an idea. But what I've discovered is you don't. You really don't until you put the time in and don't censor yourself. Just see what happens. And and often, nearly always, of course, you end up in a place you did not uh, know you would. Sometimes that you wish you hadn't. But that is the art of doing a book that people want to read.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, and we are traveling down a dark desert highway in a flatbed Ford. I have an amazing guest mick wall and i have already talked 15 minutes before (laughs) i hit record and we finally just said okay look we need to get started because we are leaving gold on the table mick welcome to the podcast
2: thank you and just to finish the thought we were having before we talking about bruce obviously when bruce uh was first signed all the hoopla was the new bob dylan probably did him more harm than good i don't know but we were talking about biographies and how the ones i value most are the ones that get right in there and tell you the good the bad the ugly yes Um, because i can't i'm a grown man i can't relate to anything in any other way whether it's reading about a political figure or an artist a filmmaker rock and roll musician, whoever it may be. I can't read something that tells you what a great guy they are all the time, because it's just patently not true and doesn't tell me anything useful. So I'm reading a book about Bob Dylan at the moment. I've read many books about him. Dylan, for me, is maybe what, like, Springsteen is for you. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I don't read a hell of a lot of biographies because I write them. Sure, But, but this one is spectacularly good. And he is brutal. He is brutal in his assessment of the life, and but I always say because that isn't all he is. He also brings praise where it needs to be brought, and I believe that because I know he doesn't cop out on the other stuff. Yeah, so for that makes me, sense. Uh, yeah, to me, it's it's not a hatchet job. It's actually someone treating me with respect as a grown-up human being who isn't easily pleased with all that bullshit I want some insight into the real life inevitably you have to you have to bring that same focus to every aspect I've written books where some reviewers say oh I was very snarky and I'm thinking where yeah I'm thinking Mm -hmm. where did that happen Mm -hmm. because that wasn't the intention the intention was just not for it to be a love letter or, or just a fan book. Mm. Yeah. For me, the, the, the people that like reading really good grown up books by people that know what they're talking about, that's interesting. Not whether their second album was the most amazing and their third was the second most amazing or that's for some other places to discuss.
1: Absolutely. By the way, what's the name of the book, Dylan book?
2: Oh, God, I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, (laughs) It's called Time Out of Mind, and I think the author's name is Ian Bell. I think. I'll look it up. It's like one of those, it's like volume two. It's one of those. It's like about the American Civil War, several volumes. But he's good. This guy's good. No one is perfect. There's stuff that I would, has given me pause for thought. Yeah, But I applaud the effort. It's absolutely top rate. Yeah,
1: Time Out of Mind by Ian Bell.
2: That's it. Okay. That's the one.
1: There, yeah. There, there I, it did, I didn't
2: even know it existed. It came out about 10 years ago. I was in a secondhand bookstore, which is my favorite place to be. And I found it. It was like, oh, okay. It's cheap. I'll buy it. Big hardback. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it's very good. It's, it's not my style but it's very good
1: very nice all right listeners i am talking to mick wall he is a writer as you can tell he may not be from texas this is a timey wimey <laughs> episode it is my morning it is his afternoon welcome to set less bruce mick tell us a little about yourself
2: I have a brother that lives in Texas actually and you're going to ask me where and I'm not going to be able to tell you because it's not one of the big cities it's a very small town miles from anywhere okay and it's a dry town yes. so if that offers any clue
1: that is many small towns in Texas a <laughs> you know, I warned you that we would go on tangents i my dad was in the army i moved around a lot and i but we ended up living in Louisiana because that's where my grandparents lived. And I went there and that's where I met my wife. And so we moved to Texas in 84 and Louisiana bars are, they open, they create bars without a lock on the door because they're never (laughs) closed. Right. And we got here and there were parts of Dallas that were dry. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. You can't buy alcohol here. And you would have to, you would have to pay for a – if you're at a restaurant, Mick, you would have to pay um, a dollar to join a private club so they could sell you alcohol. And and then it was like at one grocery store on this side of the street would be in a wet area. You could buy like beer at the grocery store. And then across the street, the other grocery store was in a dry area, and we didn't realize it, and we're walking all over going – where, where's the beer Where, it was, <laughs> uh, that now has gone dallas is mostly all wet now but yes it, when i moved into dallas that was very common
2: yeah i i, I had no i've been to uh dallas san antonio houston yeah. um uh, and a, a friend of my brother's went to visit him and he was telling me he said i i had no idea a hundred miles to the nearest place you can buy booze i'm like get out they said no i'm telling you yeah so uh, yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it was funny because my brother-in-law lived for a while in a city that was dry and it was actually a pretty big city and so we would when we were going to visit we would say do you need us to stop and we would buy a case of beer (laughs) not for us that day just for him to have it to have a cold one after he cut the grass exactly yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. well very nice um yeah. we're here oh, yeah yeah Sorry, mick has a new book here in america it's called life in the fast lane the eagles restless ride down the rock and roll hall highway i am thrilled we're going to talk a little riding. we're going to talk about the eagles but i always like to start at the beginning mick so talk about where did you grow up and did your family listen to a lot of music as you were growing up and if so what kind
2: yeah definitely my family are irish So my mum and dad were immigrants to England after the Second World War, like so many. And so I grew up with an Irish accent until I went to kindergarten and school. And then so I'd lose the Irish accent. But the minute I got home, it would come back again. And I have three younger brothers. And it's hardly ever you would ever see us in the same room now, but... 20 or 30 years, when I first met my wife, 20 or 30 years ago, she said, she walked past a room, all four of us were in there just talking. And she said, I thought you were having a terrible argument. You were all yelling at each other. (laughs) I said, no, we were just chilling. It's just, so it's very Irish, very loud. My father was actually a musician. He played traditional Irish music, Scottish music, because he has Scots in him as well. Some, not much English folk, really more traditional Irish and Scottish. He loved American country music. So did my mum. So my mum's favourite singer was Jim Reeves. My dad was more of a Johnny Cash guy, he's that kind of dude.
1: That's but- a pretty strong combo, though. Would you throw that? Jim Reeves is just as smooth a voice as you can have. And Johnny Cash is just amazing. So, yeah, that's a great combo. She,
2: I I think she would swoon. You put a Jim Reeves record on and she's gone. Yeah. But the the main kind of influence I got from that, because as a child, I didn't really like that music. I was into the Beatles. But my dad had a little band, various groups over the years. And then as he became a father to more and more children, it all de-escalated into... Him and his guys would play a couple of bars at the weekend. And before it got to that, when he was gigging more regularly, they would come back to the house two in the morning. And I must have been I must have been four years old, five years old. And he would get my mother to get me out of bed so I could come down and sit by the fire and join in the fun. And the fun was all these crazy lunatics playing music. And that would go on and on, and then about 4, 4.30 in the morning, the instruments would go away and the whiskey would get more, and they would start to tell stories. And that was always my favourite part of the night. Of course, I didn't understand probably 75% of what they were talking about, and they would talk in code if it came to stuff that a little kid shouldn't hear. But the laughter, they would be laughing their asses off. And these were tough dudes from Ireland and Scotland. And these were not city folk. These were proper guys. And my God, the tears would be rolling down their face telling these stories. And I I think for me, that was a really important uh, aspect of growing up because I loved music, but I loved stories even more and that's how it's continued and when i became a a professional music journalist i was 19 and just doing tiny little reviews here and there and and i wrote about everything i wrote for a music weekly paper here in the uk called sounds and they covered everything rock pop funk soul folk whatever and then there came a moment when I got a job in the business and it was working for a PR company called Heavy Publicity. And they specialized in American rock bands. So they did REO Speedwagon, Sticks. oh God, lo- loads of those sorts of groups. They did Dire Straits, British Group. They did Black Sabbath. We did Journey. And I wasn't, I was okay with all of that it wasn't music I'd run to the store to buy but I was okay with it but as I got to know these guys the stories and at that point I gravitated to writing more about rock bands because I'd written a lot about pop groups and punk groups and and these groups knew nothing they were really unworldly they were big in England and nowhere else and Their careers might last two or three years, and then it was over. These rock bands would have been around for 20 years, toured everywhere in the world, destroyed hotel rooms, been in private planes, had endless adventures. And after a show, out the stories would come. And that was always my favorite part of being on the road was uh, listening to these stories because they were just mind boggling. The adventures these guys had, particularly pre social media where nothing is recorded or filmed or, or kept. It's all in the moment. And so that's that is absolutely how I ended up writing about music and particularly rock bands with a story. Yeah, Uh, I've written about more than just rock bands. I come back to them time and time again. And also because and here's where the Eagles come in.
0: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
0: And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
2: One of my, absolutely my biggest selling book was on Led Zeppelin, When Giants walk the Earth. And exactly like the Eagles, they were absolutely one of the biggest bands in the world, in America, in the 70s. And yet they got no respect, none, not even faint praise. But what is this shit? That kind of reaction. And it has persisted. And for me, the really great writers in music or art or entertainment, they'll write... They'll write you a a crazy, mind-boggling book about Frank Sinatra, but they're not going to do it about Led Zeppelin or the Eagles. So I made that my ticket to ride. I think also because I related to the underdog thing, because being a son of Irish immigrants in England, particularly growing up in the 60s, when the IRA was still bombing the shit out of everywhere, but we were treated like second-class citizens my dad didn't make it easy for us. He had a huge, it was called a Humber, big car. And he had it painted in the colors of the Irish flag. Okay. God damn. Yeah. He was always being stopped by the police. But he
1: was such a. Driving while Irish, right? They they yeah, talk about exactly. America driving yeah. while black, driving while Irish. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, Jesse, you got it. And, and they weren't educated. I did really well at school. I went to one of those schools where you were supposed to go straight into university and a nice career. Mm. But my parents had left home at 14. They When they went to school, they had no shoes. They were all, always reminding you how they had no yeah. shoes when they were kids. And so there was none of that explained to me. I wasn't aware of that world. So I left school at 16 and 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 just did whatever crazy job I could find to bring some money in. And so I think that whole underdog thing of being slightly outside the norm, you can pass until they start to get to know you. And then clearly you're not one of them or, sure. or one of us. And I think the Eagles suffered similarly in a way they came along at a time when the sixties was still the mothership yes. was still what you referenced everything against. And I think the Eagles were really very seventies band. Um, I always, I think in, the, I don't know if I say this in the book or not, but I probably do, but people like Crosby, Stills and Nash who despised the Eagles, that generation To me, they were like pioneers of the 60s into the 70s. But by the time you get to the Eagles, their first record comes out in the early 70s. To me, they're not pioneers. They're settlers. They're the the children of the pioneers. And, of course, the kids aren't turning out the way mum and dad thought they should. They're not respectful enough. They're not righteous enough. They're not playing by the rules. And so for me, this was wonderful material, apart from the fact they also make great records. I have a certain love of Los Angeles because I lived there for a while, mm-hmm. but also and America in generally, I've been all over America. I love America. I had no intention of ever coming home when I lived in LA and then long, too much of a long story, but it didn't pan out that way. Sure. So, so for me, and also the seventies are a, that's more my decade like the 60s was innovation was hope for the future there's the pill Uh, drugs aren't drugs they are instruments of creativity they are there to expand your mind to further your consciousness so that you may achieve greater thoughts greater things in your life and it's been covered the 70s i was i'm about your age jesse i I was 12 in 1970 and that was just thereabouts i started buying lps for the first time
1: yeah because i'm thinking i graduated high school in 77 so i was born in 59 so yeah we're close to the same age and that's my musical ranges too right that you've reached the point where you're not you have some kind of, mine was an AM clock radio in my bedroom, right? That I could choose the radio station I wanted to hear versus my parents' music in the car. By the way, I did want to ask you, I find there's two kinds of guests. The guests that never, never turned their back on their parents' music, but expanded their range, or the ones that didn't care for their parents' music till they hit 30 and realized, "Oh, this shit's pretty good." <laughs> so, I didn't know which one you were.
2: <laughs> I I think I'm maybe closer to the second. Yeah. Um, because I hated it. But then yeah. my dad was this guy that was relentless and, mm-hmm. and and I think in my mind I related it to he put my mother through torment bringing the guys back all the time. Sure but absolutely i was in terms of say country music i got into that much earlier i think i was about 16 when i bought the emmy lou harris album elite hotel okay and that came through listening to her on other records bob dylan did country
1: yeah
2: rod stewart made some country music early uh, on so did elton john it was always there
1: sure absolutely um,
2: but yeah, I had a huge road to Damascus moment in about the mid eighties, where I suddenly got so into country music, American country music, that I couldn't listen to anything else. It was Graham Parsons. It was at that point new the new country. I don't know if remember that Steve Earle, Dwight sure. Yoakam, but I also I got into Chris Christopherson and and. Uh, Willie Nelson, got, I'm sure. Oh, up to the mid-90s, Yeah. and I'm back doing publicity for artists for about a year or two, and I'm doing Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, and the band. Mm. And uh, Willie Nelson, everything you've ever read about Willie Nelson times 10 yeah um, i used to be uh quite a pothead in those days mm-hmm. and uh, willie rolled a joint We're in his hotel room yeah a break between people coming in to interview him and he's like, i won't do the accent god forbid yeah. to an accent. yeah and i said sure and i'm experienced weed guy at this point yeah then, i don't know what he had in there man but it absolutely fucking my my yeah This was Willy Weed. And I remember the tour manager saying to me a couple of hours later, he said, You okay? I said, I'm feeling good. I just done a fucking walk. You've been on the Willy Weed. I was like, Yes, I have. Yes, I have, sir. Yes. So Um,
1: as much as you love stories, I'll share one with you. I have I have a very dear friend named Sarah Hickman. She is a singer-songwriter. And she was the she was the official state musician of Texas the year after Willie Nelson. So she's, oh, really? yeah, so yes. Wow. And so Sarah is someone who is always wanting to do something to make things better. So she went to the, cause she asked the state legislature, what does this mean? Oh, it's just an honor. And she goes, I want it to be more. So she said, what if I record an album? of other Texas musicians doing my songs and will donate all the proceeds to music education in Texas. Right? She's at a party and she sees Willie and she says, we're, we are certainly not friends, but we're aware of each other. Right? And so she goes up to him and talks to him and he said, darling, I'd love to. Uh, Absolutely. I'll record something. They uh, he was scheduled to record, this is months later, and <laughs> they got a call that Billy's bus had been stopped and I don't know if they'd been arrested or something because it's Willie. And so Sarah had woke up the next morning just devastated that we're not going to have Willie, This I just don't know if this album will work. And she goes to the studio, go, oh yeah, he's already been here and he recorded, he recorded a song called Simply. And she's like, what? And Willie's like, yeah, darling. We just drove all night. I promised you I was going to be here. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he does a great version of her song, simply. But it's Willie Nelson, of course. It's going to be great, right? See that
2: he's a tough guy. He, that's proper stuff. That's what I'm talking about. And he drove through the night on the bus.
1: Yeah, just because he had made a promise to her that he was going to do it, and it's just right. I I, I so love I that. Know. Yeah. I'd um, love
2: to, I'd love to do a book. On Willie Nelson.
1: Oh yeah, I think so, absolutely. Yeah. So you've, I, I've, you've answered why you. It's the stories that make the difference. Why you became a writer, and yes. I, I love that idea. So I'll share at this point. As a child of the '70s, as I said, I graduated high school in '77. You're either a Fleetwood Mac guy or an Eagles <laughs> guy, and I was an Eagles guy. I adored. I remember when Hotel California came out and my Jeff Cormier, who I was lucky enough to see at my high school reunion, was our chemistry teacher at the time, and he was a huge Eagles fan and he said and the single, new kids on the new kid in town, worst album song on the album. He was like telling us. <laughs> and I just adored it. I just adored the band. Uh, I loved everything about them and never got to see them live, never had a chance. And when they were touring before the pandemic, my wife and I said, do it. We're going to get tickets. And then the pandemic happened. And so two years later, they showed up here in Dallas. We were there. They were doing Hotel California. That was the tour where they did it in its entirety. And... And it was just going back to my high school, seeing them. I saw that same year, I saw Kiss for the first time, which I adored when I went through that spell with all high school boys in the 70s. Kiss Alive, just that 8-track stayed in the player and Kiss Destroyer and saw the Eagles. And I'm like, man, I'm just having, my high school self would be thrilled. (laughs) So when- Kiss the Great Live, by the way. Oh, they were amazing.
2: Better now than ever, maybe. Yeah,
1: they were great. So that's why I say when I was reached out and said, hey, do you want to talk about this? I'm like, absolutely, I adore the band. You've talked about they don't get a lot of respect. So let's start, I want to start with why, what about their story intrigued you enough to write a book?
2: There have been a number of books on the Eagles. I hadn't done one. And I had a kind of... (laughs) I had a, a literary decision to make at a certain yeah. point, in the Eagles book. How much do you cover what happened after they broke up? Yeah. And this book was originally conceived over five years ago, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. A very different world then. And first that was going to be quite a part of it. Yeah. And then the deeper I got into it, Because I guess because of the planning stage, I just imagined that would be Don's records, Glenn's records. Of course, it's way more than that for all of them. And I realized, my God, you can't just tidy this up in three or four chapters. This is actually a book on its own. And it's a really interesting book. I did a book on Jimi Hendrix before the pandemic. And... That was not going to be like any of the other Hendricks books either, because I read them all. I, same with the Eagles. And there have been some good ones. Mark Elliott did a very good one. But these are very conventional biographies. They rely on facts, interviews. It's much more journalism. And what I do these days, and not just suddenly out of the blue, but over the course of many years have began by inserting little things into my books, just a little break. Here's a little strange, we're going to go off on a tangent now and to the point where Hendrix and the Eagles are both almost like one long tangent. Mm. But for me, it is the closest I can get to offering you my absolute truthful, honest version of what I have discovered. And the Eagles is something I'd thought about for such a long time because of LA, because of California and because of the seventies and because I felt they just, everybody is kissing Neil Young's ass. And I love Neil Young and Joni, and all that whole generation. I love their music, but they never wrote one of these nights. Yeah, they. Come on, man. Yeah. The, the Eagles wrote magnificent songs, rock songs. Yeah, they were coming originally from the countryside, like Zeppelin were originally coming from the blues.
1: Mm-hmm. But that
2: isn't what they did with it. That isn't that was where they came from, but that wasn't where they were going or how they ended up. And I think I also had a, my own curiosity because. Over here in the UK, particularly in the 70s, we had exactly two shows on TV which showed music. And uh, one was a chart show. uh, And that was like, it's number seven this week, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you took the rough with the smooth. But the only album-oriented show we had was a late-night show that would be on at like midnight. uh, And then next week it wasn't on. And then next week it was on at... 10 minutes to midnight it was you really had to be dedicated because it was treated like totally unimportant and that was the first time i saw the eagles on there playing live okay. Everybody by. and they had i don't know what an intrigue they were very intriguing and i've been listening to a lot of dylan and america i really like that group america and i loved acoustic music all that stuff and they seemed to have something, I don't know, they brought a little different kind of energy to it. And they looked a bit mean to me. I remember Bernie Ledden did not look like a guy who fucked around. Uh, and and Randy was always sweet. But right. Glenn and Don like serious dudes. And I don't know, I found it interesting. And I followed him. I followed him. I've always followed them. The other big attraction for me was, and this might sound strange at first, but Most of my books have been on people that I've actually known either really well or for a very long time personally. Led Zeppelin, before I wrote that, I'd been very close with Jimmy for over 20 years. Okay. I knew Robert and had interviewed him many times. Same with John Paul Jones. Same with Peter Grant. I was ghosting Peter's memoir when he died. And so Mm. that project died with him. But many other mutual acquaintances. And at the end of that Zeppelin book, because in those days, I really did feel like I know this story and I'll just write, I'll write it as best I can. By the end of that book, I realized I'd never really known Led Zeppelin at all. Wow. I I, I absolutely had not grasped even the fundamentals of the story. It is a tiny example. Then we'll switch it back to the Eagles. Sure. But that whole thing about the group broke up because John Bonham died and Jimmy told me this millions of times after John died it was one of the four elements was missing and so we couldn't recreate that blah 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 I yeah. bought all of that until I started doing the Zeppelin book and you go beyond the myth and you get people telling you about what was actually going on in the room. And here's the question I finally posed to myself if John Bonham had died, after Led Zeppelin Two and Whole Lot of Love came out and destroyed America, do you really think they'd have split up? Does anybody in their tiny mind think for one moment they'd have gone? Oh, that's the fourth element missing, and therefore, right. blah. blah, blah. Would they fuck, man? They'd have got, they'd have got Carmine Peachy in, or or someone else. I guarantee you, they were not millionaires yet. They were not. The Empire had not been built. And when Bonham died, Zeppelin had already died before mm-hmm. that. It was a rotting corpse. Eagles, oh, they ripped off, they ripped off the grapes. They weren't ever as good as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. How can you even look at them when you've got the burrito brothers? How can you take them seriously when even the Stones can do country songs? that are better than the eagles i just they seem to get hammered for being really good (laughs) and really
1: good and i i really want to talk about that because one of the things that is clear in the book is that there is a snobbery to many people enjoying the that are talking about the eagles that i'm going to put it in terms of television and for a very this is a very modern reference but cbs here did a remake of the british show ghosts right there's a uk version where this couple end up buying a house and the wife ends up hitting her head and she now can see ghosts she's the only person that can see ghosts and it's a it's on bbc and the american version comes out and there is this To certain people, snobbery, I like the original. (laughs) How dare you do this? And the whole, you get into this, that they decide that Graham Parsons and other people were like, we're going to do this, what we would now call Americana. Yes. Right? This is going to do this. And it didn't fly. It did okay, but it did not reach this. But the Eagles found a way to make it their own and expand on it. And it's almost there's this, fine, if you like a copy of a copy, but I love the true original. There's a certain degree of Springsteen fans, really, after darkness, It's been okay, but really to love Bruce, you got to go darkness before versus enjoying everything they do. I got that feeling from read the book. Please expand on that.
2: Absolutely. You're talking about the Eagles arriving in LA at the Laurel Canyon scene at the absolute height of pretension, artistic ambition. This is pretty much post-Beatles. Sergeant Pepper we, we forget now because so much wonderful rock music has been made over the years and people like Springsteen and Don Henley and Glenn Frey have written some of the all-time American classics before anybody knew of them we had Sergeant Pepper that was the moment where people went oh there's more to this than I love you you love me oh how happy we will be and literally in 1968, that was the first year that the sale of albums overtook the sale of singles. Mm-hmm. And fantastic. But by the and also Rolling Stone comes along, the Beatles, Hendrix, at five-card trick. It's everything. You've even got Elvis doing a comeback in 68. So everything right. is golden in rock and roll. But by the time the Eagles come along, everything is not golden, not even in Laurel Canyon. David Crosby's wife has been killed in a car crash he's now a junkie. Graham Nash has split up with Joni. I interviewed Graham Nash last weekend, weekend before last actually, and he was saying to me you never get over being in love with Joni Mitchell. I wish I'd interviewed him and could have put it in the book. But, um, oh yeah,
1: that's that's nice.
2: Yeah, he said every birthday he still sends flowers to her door even though she was the one that ended it. But I'm getting off the point. What I was going to say is is that Dylan's in hiding. The Beatles break up. Crosby, Stills and Nash are not what was happening. Hendrix is dead. Everybody's dead. And in terms of sort of socio-cultural history, we've also got Nixon in power. We've got the dead Kennedys, MLK. America has been to the moon and is now over it it's all going to be over by the time 72 comes along it's such a strange time for the world and i think yes a lot of those people that came with that 60s generation they must i can totally get it how they would have looked at the 70s and gone the fuck is this this isn't what yeah. we for. but the fact is that you get the artists the era itself produces the artists In a certain way, and for me, the Eagles were a little bit like, say, David Bowie. They were. It was hard for those oldsters to marry the. What is this compared to Dylan doing Highway 61? What is this compared to the Stones doing Sticky Fingers or something? And I think the Eagles suffered a little bit because of that. You've got the immense snobbery slash pride of these genuine pioneers whose world is it's all parents. The kids come along, you got, I know I got my, this is what's going to, for them, it will be better. And they go fuck that. And they run off and they take drugs and they get in car crashes and everything goes to hell. And you're like, that wouldn't have happened in my day. It's just generational. It's generational. But I think with the Eagles, it was more acute because music is so acute beyond words, beyond images music gets right inside your bones and your blood and it almost doesn't matter what you think you'll know what you think you'll figure that out very quickly but what you're thinking about hits you long before the words come yeah and and that's what you ultimately think about and respond to and the eagles had this from the get-go this incredible facility to create music that was instantly memorable, instantly infectious. They did that, didn't hit a home run every time, but the fact that they could do it once or twice or three or four times an album is astonishing. And I think what people often neglect too is their talent. Don would never make Drummer of the Year, but I saw Crosby, Stills and Nash in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh or 77 77 i can't remember but uh, their vocals weren't that good it's the one thing people always talk about It, it was when they heard this graham nash said this to me two weeks ago when they all heard themselves singing together for the first time the sound that made that's when they knew and everyone that heard it knew something great had come along and he's absolutely right but live no it was some nights amazing mostly really mediocre eagles fucking hell man diamond score every single night they really did have these beautiful voices that worked well together but no one the same way they did with crosby stills and ash no one made a deal of it all they said was that they were like interlopers they'd they they said exactly what they'd said about elvis presley which was he'd taken this or um uh the originators used to say, he'd taken this raw country sound, this raw blues sound, uh, and he even did the songs that all these black artists had done, Hound Dog and all the rest, Um, and he popularised it. He he somehow denuded it, somehow took away its virility and vitality and excellence because he did it in a way that white kids loved or white audience or whatever. I think similar for the Eagles, these accusations that oh, they're just a cheap Crosby, Stills and Ash ripoff. They'll never be as good as Graham Parsons and his various groups. They'll never be. It's like they'll never be. They'll never be. They're not trying to be. They're not trying to be. And I think also something else relevant, which also happened to Zeppelin, is because the critics didn't get on board, that was usually the kiss of death. Because this is the golden age of rock journalism. Rolling Stone in 1973, 1974. This is the cradle of civilization. Buying Denim and joint crowd. I don't know how to describe us back then, but you and yeah. I, were in uh, yeah, it was you and me, right? Buying records, right. going to shows and just really getting involved. And Rolling Stone was brilliant. It would bring you deep stuff on all the people you wanted to know about. It said Led Zeppelin were utter shit and it treated the Eagles with complete contempt. In both cases, it was only when Cameron Crowe came along that in 75, 74, 75, he was this 15-year-old kid writing for a local rag where he lives. I forget where he came from. Was it San Diego, somewhere like that? Yeah. And it can relate because he loves these bands because just like you and me, who about that, I was 16 in 74, you were 15. Yeah, You're Cameron Crowe's age. Okay, so just like yeah. you, he's into the fucking Eagles or Springsteen or whatever it might be. I, d- I don't say Zeppelins. I don't know if you were a Zeppelin guy. But
1: yeah,
2: for Cameron Crowe, there was no difference to him between Led Zeppelin and the excitement that those old fogies on Rolling Stone felt, uh, seeing the Rolling Stones. There was no difference between the excitement Cameron Crowe got from the Eagles than what those Rolling Stones old farts would have got from the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel or yeah, um, there was no difference, but there was that snobbery and music journalism was at its golden age. It's most pretentious. It's how I ended up becoming one because it seemed like a great thing to be. Yeah. And and of course there's no social media over here. There's nothing on telly and radio, What do you got? You got your music magazines.
1: Yeah. Do you do you think part of this also is from the book? It appears that at times they were, especially Glenn and some of the other members, Don, were not the kindest people at times, maybe not the easiest to work with. Do you think that is part of it as well?
2: I don't think so because okay. because the, the behaviors they exhibited were no different to any okay. of the other people. Glenn and Don, we'll get into that in a bit. But can do we really expect that they would be tougher to deal with than Jagger and Richards? You know, good or...
1: point. Very nice. Good point. Yeah.
2: J- Jimmy Page and Peter Grant.
1: Yeah, um,
2: dude, I- I'll take Glenn and Don any day.
1: Mm-hmm. What did? Is there anything in doing the research and writing the book that surprised you about the band?
2: Yes, because when you get into the detail, we all know the broad strokes, or we think we do. We know enough to get by. But I hadn't particularly planned on it uh, going the way it did. Like I say, I just let it see uh, where it takes me. So I think one of the things that it really brought home to me was how deep their roots actually go. This little Johnny come lately stuff. It's just BS. They, their roots go deep. These are Americans. Oh, they're not from LA or they're not real country. These are real Americans. And we all come from some other place. So don't be giving me that you're not one of us. And they had a dream. And a hunger, because the hunger is, I think, the defining quality. Dreaming is free and is definitely to be encouraged. But achieving requires, you have to have no plan B if you really want to make it. I've known some, I can't tell you how supremely gifted I can think of one or two musicians I've known over the years who never made it, never will, never could. Because they're just comfortable where they are and, and they make their lovely music and there's nothing wrong with that. But they came to LA, like every including me, and I'm sure almost everybody that ever moved to LA for, for a better time, better opportunity, better life. Just see, try one thing. And it seems like a place where things happen. And so off they go. And god damn it, but they make it happen. They make it happen. I forgot what the question was, Jesse. I went off on such a tangent there. Are
1: there things that surprised you about the book.
2: Yeah. I, yeah after
1: researching, yeah, and I, you did yeah. good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, it, I suppose it surprised me, as always, that I didn't know as much as I thought I did, which for me means most people didn't know as much as they thought they did. They're, all the books I read were very good. Mark Elliott's, particularly, Bernie's, sorry, not Bernie, Don Felder's own book very good clearly one aspect of the story but very vividly told but what surprised me was it was so much more involved on a human level than I think those two books were able to make clear Mark Elliott brilliant journalist great writer really good book no downside but he is a proper journalist and he does proper journalism and he's thorough bloody great research, does the whole bit, top man. With me, I think we were talking before we started this about about this sort of thing. And for me, I find I get a greater contact myself, a greater connect with a story when it's told from the inside. And that doesn't have to be a guy that was there. I've done those books and the problem is that the guy that was there will, it, that's what the book's going to be about. Don Felder's book is about the guy that was there and, and it's great. But uh, no, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. To me, it was uh, just extraordinary to, to try and just under, understand. Let it. There's a thing of, oh, I don't get it. Uh, let it. That's the key. And I think uh, that's what you got to do. And, They were monsters. They were bigger monsters than I had imagined, but they were also much more emotionally intelligent, and you can't write those songs and not have some good stuff going on inside you. Yeah, so the whole thing, really, the whole thing. Yeah. I I had no idea. From reading the other books, I didn't get that feeling of what it was like to be there at that time.
1: One of the things I loved about the book is the... The feeling of this. um, Bruce often talks about that. It's one plus one equals three. The magic of a band chemistry. And you do feel like this was. A. Great greater than the sum of its parts. That them together. I did want to as we're recording this. Randy Miser has passed away just a few days ago. Share a little bit about maybe a story or two from the book about him or and we are losing too many of our icons of our youth aren't we mick
2: and there's a reason for that it's because we're getting older it'll be our turn next jesse um yes which is why it's useful to do this sort of thing and and put something down for the record absolutely Um, randy was definitely the sweetheart of the group Glenn and Don already had a relationship and they both got each other. They were outsiders trying to break in. uh, And they made no bones about the fact that they wanted to make money and be a success. Otherwise, why bother? That was their deal. And Randy wasn't that he had been in lots of different bands. He'd played with all the legends that the Eagles later got. Oh, no, sorry, that was Bernie. No, R- Randy had played in a ton of bands, good bands, and he'd also been in Poco, who, country rock, but was was right between that moment, between that whole Graham Parsons moment or when the birds went country and that era, to the Eagles, right in the middle of that, here comes Poco, and they seemed, they had the sort of authenticity, but they also had tunes. And he was in that. I think that was Richie Furet or someone. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. And he recorded the first album, but they wouldn't let him in to get involved in the mix. Giant Egos. Because they were a bit of a super group in some ways. And he quit. So he was gone by the time the first album came out. A Man of Principle. And he played with lots of other LA bands. He was known as in England, you'd call him a good egg. In the states, I guess you'd say a good guy, cool guy. But n- not at all Glenn or Don. Not at all pushy or particularly assertive. He they always wanted him to when he sang his songs, and of course he sang they're actually their biggest selling single of all time. They wanted him to stand stage center just like they did like Glenn did when he sang or Don came up and he wouldn't do it and it pissed Glenn off I think Glenn thought he was doing him a big favor in a way and Randy didn't want to do it. He said I just want to be at the side there, do my gig but a lot of resentment built by the time you get to the Hotel California tour and everything's gone insane and everybody's on insane amounts of cocaine including Randy. And uh, there came a night right towards End of Tour, and they wanted him to go out and do Take It to the Limit as an encore. And that's a hell of a song to sing if your voice isn't in good shape. But Randy had been on a long binge several nights and he just couldn't sing it. So he he said no. And, And Glenn threatened to kill him if he didn't go out there and do it. And he couldn't, so he didn't. And that was like the beginning of the end. Randy announced he was leaving not long after that. um But then he wrote some beautiful music. He had a f- beautiful voice, very good bass player. And yet he didn't, his career never recovered really. He did some solo work, a couple of minor hits maybe. And the truth is, it's a sad story because it ended, his marriage ended six or seven years ago very badly when his wife accidentally shot herself. Mm. But there were years of stories of the two of them in a very kind of dysfunctional, toxic relationship, drugs, alcohol, the whole mm. thing. And he also and he developed a lung disease, a very bad one. And after his even by the time of his wife's death, he was actually on oxygen and things like that. And then after his wife died, I think downhill from there, possibly. I hope his last few years were more pleasant because it was definitely a tumultuous relationship by all accounts. So maybe his last years were more peaceful. I hope so. That is,
1: that's my hope too. Correct. We, we do take a lot from our heroes. We, a lot of times we are unhappy as we talked about if they have, feet of clay when we're actually just they're just human i remember Penn gillette who is also like you a massive dylan fan and he talked about that when he went to the dylan museum which is fabulous by the way and there's these notebooks of dylan working on songs and he says the thought was that dylan just Cut his wrist, and the song came out fully formed <laughs> with all his emotion and his heart. And the yeah. reality is, he just this was there is a work to it. There is that rare lightning in a bottle where you sit down 15 minutes later, you have a song, and you go, Hey, that was pretty good. But usually, it's not that easy, is it?
2: No, and particularly the songs that the Eagles quickly specialized in. Very clever, very mature melodically. These they, it was a little like Steele. People often talk about the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, and of course, there's an overlap. But I think in the Eagles' case, sometimes even more with Steely Dan in terms of the their musical sphere of reference. There was a lot more black music in the Eagles than people realised until later on. Um, Randy. Um. If you look at the lyrics to Take It to the Limit, they are absolutely brilliant. And then another track he did, was it Outlaw Man? I think on the second side of one of these nights. Lyrics on that, amazing. And that really could have, Desperado was them saying rock bands are cowboys. The, that track that Randy wrote and sang was better than any of them because it really was a rock band. Although he was ostensibly singing about this this guy on a horse, you know.
1: Yeah, I want to remind everyone the name of the book. Life in the Fast Lane, The Eagle's Restless Ride down the Rock and Roll Highway, Mick Wall, available at your local bookstore, anywhere. You can find your books. Please check it out. It's amazing. Before I let you go, I got to do the Merry question. If you're a fan of Mick's and you're listening to this podcast, thank you. I end every podcast with what I call the Mary question. Jay Armstrong, who is a writer himself, but he used to be a high school English teacher. And he would give the lyrics to the song Thunder Road to his class. They would read the lyrics. They would discuss the imagery that Bruce paints. They would compare it to other poetry. And then he asked the question, does Mary get in the car? So Mick, that is your question. (laughs) Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road?
2: Yes. Yes, she does. I think she goes running into the car, doesn't even open the door. Just It's an open top, got to be. And yeah. she she jumps in and off they go, because I think also Mary, there's interesting Mary, because her name comes up in a couple of other songs. And they're very similar sort of characters. And you you, you could wonder, are they based on the same person? But also, I think Mary represents us, the audience. Because the lyrics of Thunder Road, they echo the stuff in the track Born to Run. Mm-hmm. It really is very cinematic. It's almost like a trailer for the track Born to Run because it's like Thunder Road happened and the next thing that happened was what happens in Born to Run, Baby yes. Will Born to Run. Yes, um, And they, and they, to me, they sound very similar and there is a cross-reference in mm-hmm. the lyrics. But I think it's us going with him and so what I would say is I would say, hypothetically, Mary stays with him forever, never leaves his side, is completely loyal and will be there to a the bitter end.
1: I, I, um, I, I love that answer. So I love that answer. If someone wants to reach you, how can they? What's the best way, Mick?
2: And the best way to do that, you can go to my Twitter It's not simple, unfortunately. It's at, all one word This at Mick Blackwall, Mick Blackwall, but it's all M-I-C-K-B-L-A-C-K-M-A-N. All right. That's Uh, me. I did have a simpler one, but they banned me. They did for swearing about the British government. So you can't even do that now.
1: I have done my share of swearing about the previous administration, so I know where you're feeling. Yes, everyone, please go check out the book. I will include a link where you can get it. Mick, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for spending a Saturday afternoon with me. I feel like it's good that you need to go somewhere because I think you and I would keep talking for hours.
2: <laughs> no, listen, absolutely, and I'll, I'll be very happy to do this again one day whenever you feel like doing it. Okay, well, ab- and
1: absolutely. Also, do-
2: if people they can get through to me on my official Facebook page, okay, which is Mick Wall.
1: I will include both links. Absolutely.
2: And there's an an Instagram. Sorry, I'm so useless at this stuff. So I have to. And there's a Patreon site.
1: Oh, good. Very nice. (laughs) Very cool. You're good, Vic. Thank you, sir. This was a lot of fun. Let's end with I've always been a dreamer, spent my life running around, and it's so hard to change, can't seem to settle down. But the dreams I've seen lately keep on turning out and burning out and turning out the same. So put me on a highway, show me a sign, take it to the limit one more time. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Mick. Thank you, listeners. And we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.